today because we're all trapped at home on a sunny day anyway. So joining me today are my two co-hosts, as always, Bailey Perkins. Hello, how are you? Hello, Andy. I'm great. How about you? I'm excellent. Great to have you. Scott Melson. Hello, sir. Man, can I just say that like we've been using uh, an alternative platform for the last several weeks, which has been great. It's a very cool platform. Uh, if you guys ever want a podcast, you should listen to this one. But... Um, <laughs> Um, but uh, I, w- I will tell you, the other platform we were using, you couldn't hear the intro music. We couldn't hear the bumper. You had to add it in post. And uh, with this, with this uh, stream yard, we can hear the bumper music, and I love it. It's like it gets me, it gets me in like the podcasting zone. Yeah, I second that. <laughs> well, thanks for joining me on this bright and sunny Friday. We're probably 20 minutes behind our usual recording schedule because um, we were getting stuff set up. And always we have a pre-episode. So today, um, man, it's been a busy week, right? So as a very brief recap, and we will undoubtedly get into the details here, but on Monday, the state Supreme Court ruled that absentee ballots don't require notarization. It was a huge deal, big win for voting advocates. And then Tuesday afternoon, the... (laughs) The House had already submitted a bill to replace that notary requirement uh, with a few exceptions, and we'll get into that. It passed the House Wednesday, passed the Senate Thursday, and was signed by the governor. I mean, I guess the Senate just walked it straight to his office because he signed it, um, I mean, within hours of passage. But that's not all that happened this week. Also, they passed a budget. It has not yet been signed by the governor, so we'll talk about that. Um, and the legislature also voted to extend... Um, the um, the CHIPA designation, the emergency um, uh, designation for another 30 days with some contingencies on there, right? So, um, so let's, that, I think that happened first. Um, it doesn't really matter. Let's, uh, we'll end with, um, we will end with the discussion about CHIPA and COVID and that general update. But let's get back to voting. Um, Bailey, I know you were paying attention to this, as was I. Um, what's your takeaways? What's your high-level view on this? So one concern that I have with how everything unfolded is the confusion that it has caused the public. Mm-hmm. So first, um, I even had friends um, asking me, so Bailey, I thought the Supreme Court said that we don't have to have notarization. And so what the Supreme Court was that it wasn't a legal requirement for ballots to be notarized. The legislature went in the next day and said, okay, well, we'll make it a legal requirement since the Supreme Court ruled that it's not. The rationale from the legislature is, well, we need to maintain election security. Uh, back in like the late 70s, early 80s, uh, there were uh, speculations of absentee ballot fraud. And so 
the notarization process was put in place back then um, as a practice by the Oklahoma State Election Board. Um, but apparently uh, it hasn't been an official statutory requirement. Um, it's just been a practice for our state over the past 30 to 40 plus years. Right. Yeah. So that's I, the debate was really interesting, I thought, in both the House and the Senate, because the the message that I heard uh, was Oklahoma is very secure. We have a great election system. Our election board is really strong. We have one of the most secure election systems in the country. We also have rampant voter fraud that is happening everywhere. We have to be very concerned about that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, stories about ballots being mailed to empty lots and, and all this stuff. And and I was just, I mean, my opinions of this aside, like, it just seemed a little silly. Where, I mean, I get that there's rhetoric and all of that, and that's the stuff that makes everyone turned off of politics, right? Like, even if it's entertaining. Uh, and so I think the 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 examples they brought in, 1956, back in the 1970s or 80s, a handful of examples, um, trying to say that, like, this is how, this is what's going thing. on. Yeah. It's a thing. Yeah. Even though, so even the, Scott, the Heritage Foundation, Heritage Center, right? The Conservative yeah. Heritage the, Center? The Heritage Foundation. Yeah. Has only... So in their research, um, only two instances of Oklahoma absentee ballot fraud in its database that goes back for the last 30 years. And I think, interestingly enough, so the whole deal is that we, the argument is, we need this notarization requirement to prevent absentee ballot fraud. And to maintain those, election integrity. Right. But those two examples of voter fraud from about 30 years ago that happened with absentee ballots, do you know who perpetuated that fraud? Uh, notaries. A notary. Right. Exactly right. <laughs> right. So it's like, well, but, but we need notaries to stop the fraud from the notaries. Now, and I will acknowledge, like, Oklahoma has a voter ID law that passed at the ballot of the people overwhelmingly, like 75% or something. It was a big deal. And I think we all want safe and secure elections, right? I mean, I do as much as you guys, but aren't there ways that we could secure absentee voting that doesn't require the voter to find a notary um, or go interact with someone face-to-face. -face. And that's the that's the real issue right now, right? Is the potential for exposure to coronavirus. I mean, so that's, yes. I think something that's really interesting to me that, that came up or that, that didn't come up that I feel like should have, right? All right, let's just... Let's say, for example, <clears throat> for the sake of argument, that, um, that that leadership in the legislature is right and that without this notary requirement, rampant absentee voter fraud will occur, okay? Let's just say that that happens, right? What are the consequences of that, right? Like, what happens? Like, does that mean that, like, felony. that it goes under... Uh, right, but, uh, okay, that's a bet. Not, not, I don't mean to the individuals who perpetuate the fraud. I mean, like to the political system, to our legislature, to elected officials, like what happens? Does that mean that like, that there's going to be like some takeover of people who like committed this? I guess the point I'm trying to figure, like, I guess the point I'm trying to make in a very uh, verbose and circuitous way is how easy is it to detect voter fraud when it happens? Right. Mm -hmm. And the answer, the answer as evidenced by the most recent case of like widespread, like kind of, uh, 
conspiracy type voter fraud that we have in America, which happened in North Carolina in the last round of elections, is with modern statistics and modeling and mapping, it's really freaking easy, right? Like in that election, it was evident on election night as returns were coming in that something didn't make sense, right? Hmm. Like you Uh could compare the data to past elections and you saw a pattern that was wildly out of character. And I was like, oh, something's fishy here. We should investigate that. Oh yeah, there was all this fraud. Negate it, new election. Right. Right. Like, like it would even be different if, if, if this fraud was to occur, which let me be clear, there's no evidence that it would or does, but if it did, it's not like this is some like thing that's super difficult to like tease out. Right. Right. And, and, you know, like, so the Brennan center for justice, um, you know, I'd look this up that they said most allegations for voter fraud turn out to be baseless between 2000 and 2012 there were 491 prosecutions for voter fraud in the entire country. So during that 12 year period, I mean, literally billions of votes were cast and only in less than 500 like prosecutions for it. So it is exceedingly rare. And I mean, in many cases, the the fraud that is alleged is that someone voted absentee and forgot and then right. turned in, in person. Those usually aren't prosecuted because it was not a malicious intent. Right. There has to be a, an intent. Right. Well, and but- in Oklahoma, like, not only do we have, we have the safeguards in place so yeah. that should true intentional election fraud take place, there are mechanisms for it to be a crime. And right. so, I mean, that was put in place in 2002 with the perjury statements. And I think right. that's where the Supreme Court was going is that there is a mechanism in place to ensure that voters are held accountable to make sure that they're, um, not violating the system. And then plus 47 and and some argue 49 states don't have the requirement that Oklahoma has. Oklahoma has the most stringent uh, voter requirements in the country. So if other places are able to have secure elections without requiring notaries, what makes Oklahoma any different? Right. Well, in in, in Oklahoma, your absentee ballot is, I think it's barcoded because if you request one, you can go online and look and it'll tell you if it's been sent and if it's been received back right and so if you didn't request one you shouldn't have been sent one and you can check it out in there Um, and then also in order to register to vote you give them the last four of your social security number and your state id number and if you register to receive an absentee ballot online you have to use that additional information to log in right and so a lot of folks have suggested and it was even suggested during the floor debate i think in both chambers for sure in the house that they even try to propose an amendment like, well, what if instead of this right. notary requirement, we just have voters write down the last four of the social on their ballot or on the document right. and send it back in right. as a check? Um, and they were and like, it, well, but it didn't go anywhere because preventing voter fraud is not the point. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Like, let's just be like, let's call a spade a spade. It didn't go anywhere because this isn't about the security of our elections. Right. Like, there's no, well, like, I mean, I can't tell you what is in the mind of the legislative leadership and everybody who voted for this, right? I mean, and I'm sure if you ask them, they will say that it is about protecting the integrity of our election. However, the facts are that on multiple instances, most famously in Pennsylvania in 2000, and I want to say 15, in 2015, the, I think, I think he was either the Speaker of the House or the Chair of the State Republican Party was giving a speech at a fundraising event and said, and now that we've passed voter ID, we're going to turn the state of Pennsylvania red, right? 
Like, right, it right. is a partisan issue about determining who has the easiest access to vote. And there's um, data that aligns with what you're saying, Scott. Um, there's data that says voter, I guess, restriction type of policies, whether it's notarization or voter ID, um, makes it more challenging and adds barriers for seniors, for uh, people yeah. of color, um, and other marginalized groups. And so um, this isn't just something that is a political bias. There's studies that allude to this being a real barrier for a lot of Americans to participate. And what is their actual right, a constitutional right? And I think that's something that concerned me as well with the debate that happened um, in the Oklahoma legislature, that there were um, members saying that it's a privilege to vote versus yeah. a right. Yeah, and right. there's a lot of people who blood, who shed blood and tears over right. making sure we all have the right to vote. So. Right. right. And I think it bears mentioning too, that like, this is one of those situations where like, you know, I would argue that like your intent here doesn't matter. Right. You may truly, honestly, deeply, uh, or truth, truly, madly, deeply, to quote, a, to, quote a, to quote a song from like 1996. Uh, you may truly believe that, like, at a, at a deep and conscious level, that you don't have a partisan agenda when you, uh, when you put laws like this into place. Right. But the facts are that they have a partisan outcome. Right. Like, what? and, 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 you know, and so to me, the the thing is to like just let as many people vote as possible, right? Let as many people vote as possible, and then make your argument instead of trying to restrict the restrict it to people who already agree with you. I, I mean, there's and Senator Kurt mentioned this, um, and uh, Linda here in the on Facebook commented about this very thing. In fact, I can put it on the screen um, that voter fraud isn't a real issue. And Julia Kurt pointed out, uh, Senator Kurt, that voting by mail doesn't benefit one party or the other. Now I'm, I'm willing to bet though, and Scott, I think your comment backs this up is that if the um, distribution of power was reversed, right? And Democrats were in power in Oklahoma with such a supermajority like the Republicans, the outcome might've been the same, right? That they might not have, uh, they might've had the same thing and put the same requirement in there because regardless of which party it is, I think it's often a, it's not a party issue. It's a power issue. Like so many of these things, right. That whoever's in the majority has something to lose, at least in their mind. Right. And so they are worried about losing their power. And by that logic, then the other side has something to gain. And whether or not that's accurate is a, is a whole different discussion. But I think that was one of my big disappointments about how this went down this week was that it was such a partisan issue. I think in the House there were three Republicans that voted against it, yeah, uh, and still seventy-one who voted for it. And then in the Senate, it was on party lines, and because like, for a couple of reasons, and I think I said this um, to you guys off the air, but that it it make that division of votes makes it a partisan issue, right, in the eyes of the public, because not everyone understands all this nuance and power grabs and whatever. And then for any organization like Let's Fix This, who's part of this coalition to like promote voting and access to voting. Well, when you've got all these groups that are promoting access to voting and then and then 
one specific party votes against it, then it makes nonpartisan organizations feel partisan. And that's like, well, we talk about that in board meetings all the time that we're trying to, to be nonpartisan and it's hard. And especially when issues like this become partisanized, whether you want it to or not. Yeah. You know, I said, I said this in one of our text messages, Andy, like <clears throat> I've been disappointed in the Oklahoma state legislature a lot of times, but like, this is one of the worst ones. Like this is one of the like most disappointing, most uh, one of the highest levels of disappointment that I've, that I've experienced because it is something that's so foundational. Like I don't understand how you make an argument against letting more people vote. Right. Like, let more people vote and make it easier. Well, so let's let's talk about some of the other nuances. So the the of this law in particular, right? Like the real deal with this is that it was about adding the notary requirement back in in a way that would stand up to legal scrutiny. So they had a few issues before, but that wasn't all this law did or does. It adds in a COVID nineteen specific right. clause, right? Where right. As a, if the concern is having to get your ballot notarized means you have to interact with, with a notary face to face, um, then what's the solution for people who don't want to do that? And the solution <laughs> that they, uh, they put out there is that you can mail in a copy of your ID card with your ballot as a, does it have to be proof. your driver's license or can it be also your voter ID card? Could be, yeah, it could be a vote ID card. It's any of the ID cards that, that are acceptable use. at the, at the, at yes. the polling place. Yeah. And so, you know, what a lot of people have said, and this is honestly, this is what I've done. So, uh, listeners, if you want to join me in this or Scott and Bailey, I emailed the county election board last night and requested, I just said, hi, um, I'm requesting a copy of, of my voter ID card. So they will mail me another copy. I have a copy. I will get another copy and I can mail one of those back. So I don't have to leave the house if I don't want to. So like, and that way it also doesn't cost any money. To me, it costs the state money. Um, so I think there's there's a workaround, however cumbersome it might be, right? And also it's cumbersome for voters and for the election boards. If right. suddenly thousands of people are calling their, their county election boards asking for copies, um, and there's no guarantee you'll get it for the election. I think at this point we will, but as it gets closer and people start paying attention, it's going to become more difficult. I mean, it adds an extra step in the process. I mean, we already have a very significant low low voter turnout rate. Mm -hmm. And so if we're adding that extra step of people having to request an additional um, ID and then having it sent back for them to mail with their ballot, um, I'm not sure how many people would take that opportunity. Um but also, even with the notary requirement, um, notaries can only uh, notarize up to 20 ballots. And so if we have, um, if we tell people you can go to this place, this place, this place to go get notarized, and they've already hit their max, what does that leave people with the option to do um, if they're not able to find a place to go get their ID copied and scanned, or if they don't have the time or resources to do it. So. Right. 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 Well, so we'll see what happens. I, I mean, I think, I, I hope that this issue is not dead, right? The issue of ballot access. Um, 
I generally hope there's no voter fraud. It seems extremely difficult and it is a, a felony for whomever commits it, right? Yeah. It's just up to five years in jail and $50,000. And somebody suggested that should be per occurrence and not just like as a one-time thing. And that's kind of like that. I'm not big on like ratcheting up crimes, but if we want to say that like election fraud is a big deal, well, then if you are ballot harvesting and you had a hundred ballots, right? And you have a hundred individual charges. They do it for lots of stuff. That kind of makes sense. And maybe that would scare people off. I don't know. Again, right, it doesn't really happen. So I don't know how to scare them off from something that's not right. happening. And like, that's the thing. Like, I don't know that any, I don't know if anyone who argues that voter fraud, like should it occur is like not a, a consequential thing, right? Like right. someone trying to steal an election is a big deal. But A, it doesn't happen. And B, when it does, it is extremely easy to catch. Right. Well, and so in the debates, I think in the House, one of the concerns from somebody was that um, they were talking about all of the unemployment fraud that's going on, right? And um, there's been something like 85,000 cases, I forget how many it is, of like uh, reported of, of of people trying to file for unemployment that weren't eligible or filing for somebody else. Yeah, happened to me this week. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, you were. It happened to me a couple of years ago, but in the midst of all of this, and so I think you know, there's been some big data breaches. I don't know what it's like in other states, but it seems like it's disproportionately bad in Oklahoma. Yeah. And I don't think that Oklahomans are disproportionately bad, right? We're not full of monsters. No. Um, I I will say in on the the subject of uh, requesting a a voter ID card. Um, David Glover, many of you know David, he has um, set up a website like he always does. It's letsvoteok.com. No apostrophe, just letsvoteok.com. And you, he has like the email addresses for Oklahoma County, Tulsa County, Comanche County, Cleveland County, I think, on there. So it's a pretty click, like pretty quick one click thing where you can just click it and then and he tells you what to say in your email. That's actually what I used last night. So pretty handy. Um, and Linda has a comment that I think we should address because we mentioned it earlier, um, that there is, yes, there is a way to get permission to notarize more than 20 ballots. So if you are a notary, you can request from the county election board. Um, you can go uh, and just ask and for a waiver, basically, and they will mail you a letter, I think, saying you are authorized to notarize more than 20 ballots. Also, anyone who is a notary at your place of business, like in a bank or a tag agency or wherever you work, eight to five, if you were in a place as a notary, then you don't have a limit. Uh, I guess the limit is only for notaries who are out floating around in the world, which is like me. I actually just became a notary, and so I need to I need to request a waiver so I can I don't know set up a drive by notarization thing, <laughs> get some PPE and disposable pens or something, and go from there. Well, Let's and see. I think it'll be important for us to mention, too, for our listeners that you can now sign up for absentee ballots in Oklahoma online. And it's really quick and easy. And what I love mm -hmm. most about absentee ballots is that for every election in that calendar year, you'll receive your ballot in advance. So you have the option to either vote by mail and mail that back in um, to the election board or you can go on election day. And um, I sometimes use that extra ballot as a cheat sheet so I can yeah. do my research ahead of time. And right, so, right. Um, but definitely go to elections.ok.gov 
um, and sign up online for your absentee ballot. And that's one thing that's that's nice about Oklahoma's system, and one thing that our system does well is that we can we can request an absentee ballot for any reason, right? You don't have to like like anybody right. who wants an absentee ballot for any election can get one, um, and it's it's super helpful. Hey, uh, I actually had uh, a question that was posed to me today because we're on it a little bit, kind of, sort of. I'll tell you how I, got th- I, how I got there in my head was Bailey said you can get your absentee ballot. You can use it to research beforehand. Uh, in 2016 and 18, Andy, you and I both each hosted some, like, uh, ballot parties where, like, a bunch of people got together. and We kind of went through the ballot, candidate by candidate, issue by issue, answering questions that people had, not telling anyone how to vote. Right, but tell, right. like telling people like what what we do about issues and where you could where you could find it. Um, I was asked today if we are going to bring anything similar for uh, the primary and if we are going to have a voter guide for the June election from Let's Fix This. Interesting. Um, so I, I imagine so. We usually we've done voter guides in the past when there's been multiple state questions on the ballot, right. like in 2018, um, and. I, June, as far as I know, it's just the one, right? It's just Medicaid expansion. I, mean, I guess we'll do one, but it'll be, <laughs> I'll save time. It's not very long. Because um, I don't think, like, there's there's still some bills, and we should talk about this, too. There's still some, some bills. some county races as well. So Yeah. And so maybe we'll do one that, like, describes what some of these positions are, because not everyone understands, right? Like, even, you know, state house and state senate, I think, are often convoluted with, uh, or confused with the federal races but certainly get to some of the like what does the county assessor do what does the county clerk do yeah those things i think are really helpful yeah that's a good thought we got a we got some weeks so tune in sometime in june for that beautiful yeah um super well speaking of which um let's kind of we'll kind of well as we go along with the legislature we'll come back to what we should watch next week because i got i have some hunches totally hunches but we'll come back to that at the end um in the meantime let's um talk about the budget um and what happened with that scott you want to start on that one yeah so they uh started passing a budget this week or they presented the budget right uh, i believe it's it's kind of better than what a lot of people had feared but it's still not great um it's like across the board four percent cuts um, with the understanding that using uh, emergency funds that have been given to the state by the feds for coronavirus, um, some of which are able to be used at the governor's discretion, others which um, are specific for education. Education should be kept whole, I think, is the argument from uh, from the legislature. And May would say that the governor has more than enough funds appropriated from the feds to backfill almost all the other state agencies as well. Um, if If the, you know, expenses are like related specifically to coronavirus, which I feel like should not be uh, super hard to justify right. in this environment. Um, Representative uh, Wallace, who's House Budget Chair and Senator Roger Thompson, had an op-ed that they pushed, uh, that published in the uh, Tulsa World a couple days ago. Um, it's a good piece. It kind of outlines essentially what I just said in a little bit more detail. One thing they said that I take issue with, and I'm sorry, I'm going to say it every single time, Every time someone says that we made a historic investment in education, I like I am sorry, right? If your boss cuts your salary by 50%, right? And then like a year later 
gives you a 25% raise, your boss has not made a historic investment in you as an employee. They have given you back 25% of what was yours to begin with. Okay. Restoring public education funding to what it was in 2009, right? Not adjusted for inflation is not the same as making an investment, right? It is like the bare minimum to try and take care of our kids. I'm not saying it wasn't a good thing to do. I'm not saying that the legislator legislators who voted for it shouldn't be given like some legit props for having done it because they should. But like, can we stop this nonsense about like, this was this incredible investment of money that we made in education after having taken the money away year after year, after year, after year, after year, after year for 10 years, like just stop it. Scott, your point is well taken that for our viewers, since we're live now, um, that it's important to look at numbers and take them into context of what they mean. So just because you see a higher number doesn't mean that it is that increase that you're describing, Scott. So I appreciate the context that you're placing that in so folks will understand that there's still a whole lot more need in education um, in our healthcare agencies and other spots in, in our state agencies. So, Yeah, so... You know, part of the budget I think that was discussed that was rather controversial was um, the pay increase for judges, right? Um, uh, it was and, and for legislators. But yes, I have I have words to say about that too. But but lawmakers <laughs> don't decide their salaries. There's a separate board who do. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Like everybody's given grief. Like they voted to give themselves a pay increase. No, they didn't. <laughs> like that's that's not now, how it works. <laughs> well. So uh, clarify this for me, and I should know this, but so the the legislative compensation board or whatever it is makes a recommendation, right? Mm-hmm. Is it then up to the legislature to enact that, though? Like, they're the ones that pass the actual budget that appropriates the money. So even if they didn't make the recommendation and they just follow that recommendation, couldn't they also not follow that recommendation? That's a good question. I'm sure that they could <laughs> not follow the recommendation, but I mean, if this body is making that recommendation, that. Um, but I mean, they 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 don't follow. They don't take recommendations for like other things all the time, like funding the ethics commission for one. <laughs> like, um, and that I think is, so. That, that's a good. That is a good question. I honestly don't know. I, I think they may have to follow it, right? Because you would think that if they don't have to follow it, right? Like there was this big hubbub like a year ago and justifiably so because the the Legislative Compensation Board recommended to like cut their pay, right? And like the, the pay cut happened. So yeah. you'd think if there was ever a time that they could like not take the recommendation, they'd be like, right. nope, thank you. We are, yeah. we are going to take our pay increase. Thank you very much. We appreciate your record, but they didn't, right? So I don't actually know if the final decision about what to do with that board's recommendation lies with the board or with the legislature themselves. I know that the legislature would say, um, one of the things they've talked about is that like in terms of themselves as a body, like the funding that goes to the House and the Senate and like their offices that they use for supplies and all those things, those were cut this year as well. Which is which is something that the legislature has in their power mm. to appropriate funds for or not, um, right. and they, I think, wisely decided to not exempt themselves from cuts this year. Right. right. Well, and also for a perspective for our viewers, um, 
some people assume that lawmakers are these rich people right. who are able to take care of themselves, but there are so many members who are working a couple of jobs on top of being lawmakers to make ends meet. And so in order for us to have a truly professional legislature uh, that's representative of a broad range of people, we have to ensure that they can have um, adequate compensation so that they're able to dedicate their time to representing us in the way that we want them to. So that's just something to keep in mind. Right, right. And same thing applies to many city employees too, right? City council members make pennies. Basically, the mayor of Oklahoma City makes like $24,000 a year. Um, so not exactly a lucrative position um, sure. to pay for a full-time life. And that's also a, a reason, and you may have just said this, Bailey, but like it's one of the barriers to people running, right? Like we often talk about like the need for more candidates. In fact, just a few weeks ago on the show, we talked about um, that you know, almost a third of the state uh, elected positions that are up for re-election this year or up for election yeah. were elected automatically because they didn't have a challenger. And you want to, you know, shake your fist and be like, just someone file. Well, you got to... There's a sacrifice to that. Yeah. Right. And there's a chance you could win, right? Like, I, I can't afford to run because I don't have a job that I can do in addition to being at the Capitol. Right. For, for those folks who do... That's great. And so it's a tough line, I think. It, it, you can make a very real case. Uh, and I think most, if not all the legislatures would agree with this. Legislators would agree with this. Um, to run for office costs you money. Like not, like not just in terms of like your campaign funds and advertising and if you right. decide to fund your own campaign, but like literally being a public official costs you money. Right. Because many jobs won't allow you to run for office and like there, that was one of the um, discussions about um, educators and being able to serve in elected positions. Um, you can't be paid from an entity that you oversee, right? right. So um, some people had to leave their jobs in order to uh, pursue this opportunity in public service. And so I had a, a good friend of mine that I believe would be an incredible a lawmaker, very competent on the issues. Um, but she said, I, I can't afford to take that pay cut. That'll be hard on my family, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And so we do have to recognize that, you know, regardless of party, that is a sacrifice people have to make when they decide to run for office. Scott, Scott and I are both married to social workers and I've often joked to my wife, like, listen, you should run for office because the pay the pay is about equal for social yeah. workers and Comparable. legislators, and and you'd have more time the rest of the year. And she did not entertain that idea as much as I did. Although both, I think she'd be great. Both of our wives would be rock stars. Yes, I have to say. Um, we're, we're, I also want to throw out: this is the first time we've done this. We're getting some like comments and interaction on the uh, on the comments feed, and I love it. So shout yeah. out, shout out to Linda and Stacy. Thanks for watching and uh, for commenting. Yeah, if you are watching, if you just joined us, welcome to Let's Pod This. I'll put the logo back on the screen. Um, also, if you'd like to comment, we can uh, we can see it and maybe even respond. So how exciting would that be? I'm not going to take song requests because I have a <laughs> terrible voice, but maybe Scott will sing. Nope. Um, a show tune or two. <laughs> not, a, not a singer. <laughs> um, all right, so the other thing that was rather significant that happened this week as I have non-doc pulled up on my iPad here, um, is that 
the legislature on Monday, I guess, uh, voted to extend the governor's declaration of emergency. Um, the cheaper. catastrophic health emergency powers act. Right. Cheaper, cheaper. We had a really great episode. Um, if you haven't listened or you don't subscribe to the podcast, please go do that. And, uh, several weeks ago, we had an episode with Brian Jones, um, where we talked all about Chipa and how, at the time, Governor Stitt was arguably the most powerful in Oklahoma history. Uh, and so it was really interesting. So that declaration, that authorization of the declaration only goes for 30 days. So the legislature had to come back and reauthorize it. The governor had to request it again, and they came back. But they had some stipulations, right, Bailey? Um, I believe so. Andy, can you go into that? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I can. Um, so they had, um, when they had initially done this, the governor was like, these are extraordinary times and we want to be sure that, um, you know, I'm within the bounds of the law, but the, the cheaper designation gave him broad powers to suspend any law he felt necessary. He could spend up to $50 million in, um, state funds from any from any fund to which the governor normally has access, but he didn't have to have special authorization for that. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like a War Powers Act, but just for the governor. And the legislature had said, okay, and he had pledged that he would let them know if he suspended any statute and if he spent any of that money. But we never heard anything. And, yeah. you know, several reporters were like, oh, you know, we didn't follow up on that either because, like, it's been a wild 30 days. I can't believe that was only 30 days ago. Well, so, I mean, there's been no need because like our case counts keep coming down every day. Right. So like there's been, there's been, there's been no, sorry. I, I hope day. that our, our listeners can interpret Scott's uh, sarcasm. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, for, for listeners on the podcast or people who are happen to be watching this live, Scott texts me every day with the screenshot of the numbers, and he says, look at them going down. And as many of you know, they've been going up the last few days. So um, so in um, the continuing resolution 1X um, that the Senate passed on um, the 5th or 6th of this, earlier this week, they gave the governor a 48-hour deadline to provide a report on actions taken under the expanded powers. And so to quote, such approval shall only become effective when the President Pro Tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House receive written documentation from the Governor which separately identifies the declaration of the CHIPA and each of the powers authorized pursuant to Section 6101, blah, 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 blah. Um, and the written documentation shall be received by the Pro Tem and the Speaker within two business days after proper passage of this resolution. Um, and so I don't know um what if he actually submitted anything do you guys know if he has turned that in yet this week i assume that if he did it and the cheapa was no longer in effect we would have heard about it right um yeah so uh senate minority leader of k floyd had asked pro tem treat if he knew if stitt had spent any money under these powers and and treat said that is one of my frustrations and one of the reasons I want this delineation. There has not been great communication on whether or not that has happened. Was that an answer for cheaper or voter fraud? <laughs> har har. <laughs> they, um, sound, they sound similar. Well, but also in I'm feeling to, feisty. 
<laughs> well, yeah. in addition to Chipa, there's been even frustration among um, the two bodies on uh, board of equalization, right? And having that communication on like where numbers were coming from when making estimates about how big the budget hole is. So there's just a lot of different instances that are contributing to why the legislature wants that level of accountability. Yeah. And um, so apparently I'm reading this article on non-doc about it. Um, Pro Tem Treat and Speaker McCall have a weekly breakfast with Stitt on Tuesday mornings. Treat said the governor told him this morning, this is on the 6th that, that he wrote this, that he has been implementing three primary COVID-19 combating efforts under the CHIPA. Um, staffing flexibility and to allow the health department to hire a bunch of contact tracers, waiver of a waiting period for seeking unemployment, and waiver of state information protection requirements in order to provide law enforcement and first responders. And, but while presenting that on the House floor, uh, Leader Eccles said he's unsure which executive orders were executed under CHIPA. He says, I'm a little confused as to which one was under which. So it just sounds like, a um a, a a not a lot of information we should find out i will message trace and see it seems like well for one that document should be public like whatever the governor sends to them um i would hope if it came from the governor's office it's under open records act um, but i haven't seen anything in the news and it has been more than 48 hours so we should make sure they follow up on that <laughs> that seems like a that, big that would deal. be good that would be good. Um, anything else happened this week that I missed that you guys want to talk about? No, I mean, I think those are really the big things. You know, I think um, we are now, you know, we're at the end of our first week of kind of the like phase one of opening up and trying to, you know, starting to return to certainly not normal, but like some some version of life that's maybe a little bit closer to normal than what we've all lived with for the last six weeks. I think a weekend is too soon for us to have any kind of meaningful information about what this looks like in terms of the state of the pandemic in Oklahoma. Um, you know, we'll see maybe by the end of next week, we'll start to see, you know, meaningful, meaningful change if there's going to be any, um, hopefully, hopefully there's not, or if there is, it, it goes down. Um, but no, I think, I think in terms of pandemic, we're kind of in a, a little bit of wait and see right now. Right, because yeah, we're waiting for another one to three weeks to see what happens. Yeah. I the that reminds me of something um, that I think it's worth mentioning, and I told you I was going to bring up two other bills I think we should watch um, that we mentioned way back in February when sessions started. I think these were part of our Predicto Rama that we did. Um, they are. Uh, House Joint Resolution 1027 and Senate Joint Resolution 31. So HJR 1027 changes the how signatures are collected for initiative petitions. Right now, you get whatever number you need of signatures and you collect them anywhere in the state. This bill um, would, well, it has to go to a vote of the people, first of all, but it would seek to change that to, to make signature gatherers collect an equal number of signatures in each of the five congressional districts, right? And so they are, this is, they're trying to 
drive a wedge in that urban versus rural divide that people talk about. Whether or not it exists is another story, but they're trying to say, well, right now you can go get signatures in the urban areas and you can ignore the rural areas and that's not fair. But the issue is... But now you're going to give... You still vote on it. Well, and this effectively gives veto power to rural areas, right? So... 80 percent of the two of the of the of the two major metros in the state could be in favor of something, but if only twenty percent of the rural counties are, it won't happen. Right. Well, but it's it's how you collect. It's only the signatures, not the votes, right? And so, right. It, right. But it, it doesn't it. matter. It shouldn't matter where the signatures are collected. And in fact, this bill is pretty broadly opposed by people on both sides of the aisle yeah. because the initiative petition process is used by everybody, regardless of your partisan leanings, right? right. So whether you whether you want to expand voting rights or you want to uh, outlaw cockfighting or whatever, like... Um, I mean, and Andy, to your point, it's about the vote. Um, right. When a state question is put on the ballot, it doesn't matter where you live in the state of Oklahoma, as long as you are a registered voter, you have the ability to decide whether you like it or you don't. Yeah, um, and 100%. Oklahomans have demonstrated um, that they have the ability to comprehend uh, what they want in law and what they don't want in law um, on a state question. Because we see a variation on um, percentages on the vote on different state questions. And so um, it's a slap in the face to voters to tell them that they shouldn't have the ability to decide uh, when policies are proposed. Uh, to have that option to decide whether or not they want it. Yeah, I said on Twitter this week, you know, I said it's a, said nothing like watching your elected leaders use uh, emergency rules to uh, undermine democracy. Like that's, and that's, and that seemed to be like the theme this week for the most part, right? right? Was uh, how do we, how do we prevent people from easily accessing the vote? How do we uh, prevent people from using the initiative petition process to do things that we don't like? Um, yeah, it's just, it was a very frustrating and disappointing week if you're an advocate for a good accountable governance. Um, yeah. And with that, <laughs> it's really important for um, our viewers and listeners to take time to follow what's going on in the legislature and stay in communication with your House and Senate member. Um, mm-hmm. The public was assured by many members that the legislature wasn't going to take up a lot of business they were solely going to focus on the things that were urgent, like um, I was set on this, this program. It was set on this program uh, right. that they were going to focus on, you know, this. Like we're going to deal with like has, three or four bills, the budget plus like one or two other things. Yeah. Yes. Yep. A handful, and we're seeing a lot of things that aren't um, urgent pieces of legislation being pushed through. A lot of things that aren't essential. So um, now is the time to. Um, Follow what's going on at oklegislature.gov. Watch the committee meetings in the House and the Senate floor uh, because different pieces of legislation um, are, are, are popping up and they're moving rapidly. Yeah, so that's the other thing is that they have used, they've suspended the rules, their own rules on number of occasions, and they've already moved a bunch of measures direct to calendar, So, yes. um, which means they are circumventing the normal... Process, process of going through committee yeah right so like normally you know the bills goes to a committee it's heard in committee if it passes committee then it goes to the floor and it may get heard there but they're just bloop bloop skipping committees and moving them right to the floor which means that 
you lose like one step and, and it may, and it often means this we just want to pass this like right and when they suspended the rules a lot of people were worried that this is what would happen that this right. is how they would use them and they said oh no no it's uh, no we're not, we're not we're not gonna do that at all uh it's just gonna be just emergency urgent yeah fight fight the, budget fight, mm-hmm. fight the corona but well, uh, and that step that you were talking about andy is essential because it gives um advocates uh, and those who are concerned about whatever piece of legislation, the opportunity to talk with a smaller pool of the lawmakers, because uh, it's an important step in the vetting process on legislation. And so it takes a tool away from advocates from talking to, you know, right. 10, 15 people, 30, if it's like a JCAP bill, to now having to influence, you know, 101 members or 48 if you're lobbying something on the Senate side. And so um, and it gives the the public less time to to weigh in on legislation and talk to lawmakers when they throw stuff directly to calendar to be heard on the floor. And so yeah. uh, to your point, Scott, this is um, this isn't transparent governance. Andy, did you mention the bills that are gone direct to calendar that are going to address the reforms put in place by state question 780? No, but I heard, I was going to say, um, the the ones I heard that there are some bills going direct to calendar that will basically, I think, undo state question 780, right? Which is a big criminal justice reform measure. Have you looked at that very much? I, I haven't looked at it at all, Bailey. Do you know anything about it yet? I just, I heard this but yesterday. It's the first I'd heard about it, so. Um, I've, I've heard a couple of people looking into it, but that might be a great thing for us to discuss um, in our next mm-hmm. podcast next week of, of what's happening around it. If they well, haven't and, done it already. <laughs> right. Well, and related to that, on speaking of criminal justice reform, yesterday, um, the state question 805 campaign, which is another criminal justice, it's reform measure, it's backed by the Oklahomans for criminal justice reform, had to file a writ of mandamus, right? So this is like the third one that's been filed since this crisis started. They, they were collecting signatures prior to the coronavirus outbreak. And then they stopped uh, voluntarily because it was not a good deal. And the Secretary of State then put a hold on it anyway. And they got, they have enough signatures. They were hoping to, I'll scout there. Um, we we're hoping to um, turn in here sometime soon. And they've been, in fact, trying to turn in their signatures, but they can't. Like the Secretary of State either hasn't been in the office or um, hasn't, Scott's back, um, hasn't let them come in um, to return them in. So they are having to ask the Supreme Court of Oklahoma to force the Secretary of State to accept their signatures. Now, I suspect this is like a timing issue, right? They have to get them turned in in order to get on the ballot, to work through the remaining steps to get on the November ballot. And they're just wanting to go ahead to do that. I think they had hoped to collect some more signatures, but it's clear that this is not going to be resolved anytime soon, so you might as well turn them in. And uh, and so the fact that they have to get the court to intervene is like an extraordinary step that shouldn't be the case. They just want to sure. drop off a bunch of signatures so they can get to the business of counting. So that adds another perspective for um, the uh, joint resolution that should that be passed, that makes it more challenging to collect signatures in other places. Um, if someone had to uh, go through that length to get signatures in, in, in different 
uh, congressional districts in the state and had to follow these deadlines. It creates another barrier. That's so. right. So then uh, one last bill that I wanted to point out before we wrap up for this week, uh, and that one is Senate Joint Resolution 31. Uh, so this would be, it's it went direct to calendar to the House uh, on Wednesday, I think. So I kind of expect it to be heard first thing next week or sometime next week. Um, it's, again, skipping the committee process, so it can be heard directly on the floor. It is a joint resolution, so it would be a state question um, in August or November that would call, it would authorize the legislature to call a constitutional convention on the state constitution. Um, and the the wording of the bill, it's real short, it's basically the gist um, that would go on the ballot, and it says it would authorize the legislature to to call for a constitutional convention during which they could amend, you know, revise, edit any part of the constitution or propose an entirely new constitution. Now, technically, under the state constitution that we have, we're supposed to have a convention every 20 years, but we haven't had one for decades. I've asked a bunch of people in the last couple of days, no one has any recollection of when it was we haven't had one where obviously where they like replace the whole thing because I assume you'd have to get that passed by a vote of the people as well. And that's going to be a steep hurdle. But I, I know this kind of bill is proposed every 10 years or so. And with kind of the goal of doing this, the timing seems awfully suspicious to me that I wonder if part of it is that they are, that they had filed this, you know, back the first of this year, anticipating that there would be three or four constitutional amendments that made their way to the ballot, and yep. this would allow them a to check on them. that, so they could come back and undo it, undo right? It. Mm. Um, which, and I don't, you know, I don't, you guys know me, I don't like being uh, super cynical and, like, suspicious like this, but come on. And the fact they've moved it direct to calendar um, does raise my eyebrows quite right. a bit. And the thing is, I would actually be all for a constitutional convention if it was actually to clean up the Constitution, right? Take out right. the stuff about licenses for dog walkers, right? Like, if that's right. what they're, like, if, if that's the kind of stuff they're going to take out, you know, like, defining the burn point, the flash point of kerosene, and, right. you know, like, those sorts of things, then fine. Like, clean it up, make it, you know, instead of 70 pages or whatever it is, make it 20 pages, and, like, we can all go home without the fluff. It's but like what, 600. I, I, I don't actually know how many pages it is, but I was... <laughs> it's one of the largest constitutions yeah, you know, in the world. Like, so. you know, yeah. um, if that's what they're going to do, fine. But my suspicion is that's not what they're going to do, right? They're going to they're going to enshrine in the Constitution a bunch of things that are potentially not not totally popular, right? And make it that much more difficult for future legislature the future legislatures to undo them should that be what the people of Oklahoma they want. Yeah. It's opening Pandora's box. Right. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So I'm going to spend some time researching that <laughs> um, to find out exactly what does a state constitutional convention look like in Oklahoma? What should we expect here? Because it makes me a wee bit nervous. So, all right. Well, on that note, it brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, Bailey, thank you for being here as always. Thank you. Scott, thanks for being here. Man, I wouldn't miss it. Well, good, because we do it every week. This is episode 118, I think. We've done a few of these together. Thanks for being here, you guys. Um, listeners, don't forget to subscribe and rate Let's Pod This on 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Viewers, thanks for chiming in and for being here. Um, we will, since we're all stuck at home and we record remotely anyway, we may do more live streams like this. We typically record Fridays around 2 o'clock or shortly thereafter. So um, we'll try to plan ahead next time and maybe promote it so that you know we're going to do it and you can join us. That'd be great. Uh, we love your questions. Very helpful. Um, we stream on Facebook, on our YouTube page, and on Periscope, which I think you can get to through Twitter. So, is Periscope um, a thing? I didn't realize that. I didn't. Either. I think Twitter bought it. Yeah, it's, a, it's an option. I'm trying to get the stream to LinkedIn. They haven't approved it yet. So, um, also, everyone, please remember that here in just uh, three weeks from today, we will not be doing a podcast because on that day we will have. Um, CivicsCon, um, so that'll be the big Civics, uh, I'm trying to find a graphic to put on here, um, our virtual Civics Convention, um, it didn't work, uh, our virtual Civics Convention, go to CivicsCon.com, it's going to be super exciting, and um, CivicsCon.com, go into the chat, um, go sign up, uh, we've had a ton of support already, it's going to be really exciting. Check out all of our speakers. They are legit awesome. We've got some local folks, we've got some national folks. We're going to weave in student voices into like a bunch of the sessions so we get an intergenerational perspective. It's going to be so awesome. And if you care about issues like absentee voting, open primary, like rank choice voting, um, uh, uh, shoot, what else? Uh, things that improve our democracy. That's right, the, the democracy improving things. This is a great opportunity to learn more about that. That's right, good governance. Independent redistricting, of course, couldn't leave that out. So, uh, on that note, thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next week.